War has come to Eastern Europe and possibly the world, but we're not going to talk about that this week, except for maybe an ironic aside. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV. I'm Neil Pollack. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, and this is the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. You can find the site at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. This week, we're going to talk about Bendergate, the struggle to find a decent salary for the guy who voices Bender on Futurama, which has new episodes in production at Hulu. And we're also going to talk about Reacher, the adaptation on Amazon Prime of the classic Lee Child private investigator, ex-military, ex-cop character who likes to bust heads and, and do vengeance on the bad people of small towns. And we're also going to talk to Stephen Garrett about this year's Best Picture Animated Oscar nominations. And that's going to come up right after this musical interlude. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. So most Oscar winners for Best Picture disappear the second the producers hoist the statuette at the ceremony to end the Oscar telecast. They they become stale beer almost instantly. I don't see anyone talking about the King's speech these days. But the best Oscar for animated picture is a different story. I mean, they started giving out this award in 2002. And I'm looking at the list now of all the movies that have won awards for best animated picture. And it's just one after another, just indelible classics that people are still watching to this day. And so it matters. And Stephen Garrett is here with me to talk about uh, this year's nominees for best animated picture. Hello, Stephen. Hey. Hey there. So this was prompted. This segment was prompted because I I did. A, I watched Encanto uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, on a Saturday with my wife because we're adult children, uh, not necessarily of alcoholics. And, um, you know, I, I, I was struck by how bad it was. And, and yet it, it is the obvious front runner for best animated picture. And so I wrote a little little Facebook post kind of making fun of it some. And, you know, some people agreed with me and then other people were like, well, my kids liked it. I'm like, well, your kids are dumb. <laughs> and then someone got on there and said I was I was a, it was a bad take and that I was operating in bad faith and that I didn't understand intergenerational trauma among mm. Latinos. And that, that to compare Encanto to Coco was a mistake just because they're both, you know, set south of the U.S. border with Mexico. You know, they have nothing to do with each other. I completely disagree with that. And then in that I didn't understand all the Gabriel Garcia Marquez illusions. And I just I'm just like, well, first of all, there's probably not a word of Gabriel Garcia Marquez that I haven't read. So, I yes, I get the yellow butterflies. And, uh, you know, I think the comparison to Coco is is quite apt. Anyway, Stephen, you have a tween, almost teen daughter. So Encanto is obviously aimed at a demographic in your household. What do you think of this movie? I, I would not have seen it were it not for her. I mean, I certainly was given the opportunity to see the movie before it released, and I politely declined. You know, I got a screening link, and I said, not for me. I mean, I think I was a little burnt by Luca, which I thought was really subpar Pixar, and I just thought Encanto was kind of in the tradition of Luca, you know? So I didn't really give it much thought, and even though, you know, of course, Lin-Manuel Miranda had written 
the music for it. And he's an incredibly talented guy. And I like the music he wrote for Moana. And then like a month or two passed. And then suddenly my kid is like, hey, she, you know, she's on TikTok. So Encanto has been fueled by the love of tweens. Global theater kids, really. Yeah, global theater kids and kids who like really clever wordplay. And frankly, I got very charmed by three songs in particular, right? Like there's the Welcome to the Family Madrigal. There's We Don't Talk About Bruno. There's, um, I forget the one, but the sister. Actually, they're, they're, the one that Louisa, the muscle sister sings. That's the very, muscle sister, you know, the stress test thing. That's a very popular identity song. Yeah. Yeah. And then the um, the pretty sister talking about how, oh, I can I can actually make something that's real. I don't have to always make things that are pretty. And I think there's some really lovely, especially those two songs, really lovely ideas and concepts about putting on a good front for the family and having to be something that you're actually not in order to uh, make other people happy. And I think that is a really lovely sentiment, you know? And then the We Don't Talk About Bruno is like the Naples Ultra of we don't talk about the uncomfortable things in our family, push it under the, the, the rug, and let's just pretend that everything's fine, you know? Yeah, that and, and musically, it's sort of the kids' equivalent of Rob Thomas and Carlos Santana. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. <laughs> Whatever happened to Rob Thomas? Anyway, very clever wordplay though, and really fun. Especially that family magical goes so fast, and you know, it's got that classic Lin Manuel Miranda, you know, rapid fire. Very clever wordplay and rhyme schemes. Yeah, but the song, you know, and the, yeah, okay, if it were just the songs sitting on their own, fine. But I felt like the movie that wrapped around them was very thin. You know, there's no, there's no real tension or conflict. And, the, and, and in the end, you know, Mirabelle, uh, her special power is being herself. Reminded me of the Simpsons episode where, where Lisa is trying to explain to Homer the, the, what Moby Dick is about. And Homer's like, no, Lisa, the point of Moby Dick is be yourself. <laughs> and, and I felt like, you know, in, in contact, yes, yes, the grandma could not let go of her trauma and she needed a hug and, and that kept the house from dying. And I just, the whole thing felt very thin and, and performa to me. And you compare it to Coco, which had an extremely memorable song in its own right and also was just like beat for beat everything fell together perfectly and made sense. And sort of the, the terms of its magical world were extremely well defined. And, you know, there's a lot of tension and a genuine bad guy. And I mean, I know that a movie doesn't have to have a genuine bad guy to be a good movie, but these are movies for kids. And I just felt like Encanto was, was a little, a little amorphous for me. And, and I felt like it, it leaned on its identity crutch too much. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, you know, I I felt like the the sort of intergenerational trauma, the 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 fleeing uh, that they did to get to the place where they started their village and had their magical house. Um, you see Abuela, you know, younger, and and that's alluded to at the beginning, and then kind of alighted towards the end, like they point at it and say, "This is the trauma," and they all hug each other, and it seems to be fine. But they don't really unpack it. They don't really detail it in the way that you're kind of saying that good storytelling does. Yeah, they don't explain. They don't explain how the house, the magical casita came to be. You know, there's a candle that appears in the darkness and then it creates this hacienda. Uh, so, so these, uh, you know, neoliberal overlords can, can keep the village safe and fed. <laughs> and I just, I, I don't know. <laughs> there, there's some clever stuff in it. I just felt like it was, it was more of a concept designed to create memes on TikTok than it was uh, an actual movie. And you, speaking of Flea, 
I wanted to talk about Flea, which is a doc, an animated, mostly animated documentary that got a kind of a surprising nomination in this category. I don't think anyone was surprised that it was nominated for Best Foreign Film, but uh, you know, it, it was nominated for Best Animated Picture alongside Luca and Encanto and the Millers versus the Machines and Raya and the Last Dragon. And you couldn't ask for a, 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 you know, those are all like big budget, big studio pictures. And Flea is like this weird Scandinavian documentary about a gay Afghan immigrant. <laughs> <laughs> and a, a really uh, terrific movie, I thought. And you want to talk about, you know, that, that movie really does unpack and explain the causes and the tragedy of intergenerational trauma. And a refugee trauma. Yeah. And in the end, you know, the you know, Amir, who is the main character, his family also ends up loving and accepting him for who he is, which is kind of a, a cool surprise twist. You know, they you'd expect, well, they're an Afghan family and he's a gay man, so they're gonna like make him go live in a you know in a ditch in, in somewhere. <laughs> and, and and no, they just instead his brother just hands him a wad of cash and takes him to a gay nightclub. <laughs> why didn't i have an older brother like that steven no nah, why why couldn't i have been a, like a persecuted refugee it's the, it's the equivalent of buying him a hooker you know yeah yeah <laughs> well i think what's interesting to see that in the animated category you've got a really bold distributor in the form of neon who was encouraged by honeyland for example which was a documentary that was also nominated for best foreign language film and then, of course, they masterminded Parasite, which was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film and Best Picture. So they've they've got a track record of kind of cross category um, nominations in surprising, unexpected ways in categories that we assume are siloed. Right. Only animated films can be in animated. Only documentaries can be in documentaries. Only foreign language films can be in foreign language. And like Disney cracked uh, famously Best Picture for uh, Beauty and the Beast. Right in like right. 91 or something right. like that. And that was one of the first and one of the few um, to actually be an animated film that's not for Best Picture. It's very rare for this kind of cross-category uh, recognition. And uh, again, I think Neon saw in Flea uh, that it's a tremendous film as an animated film, as a documentary, as a foreign language film. And so push for all those categories. And it's really remarkable and kind of encouraging to see that happen. The downside is, you know, from a from a politicking point of view, what category do you really push? Because you run the risk of spreading the vote so thin, you don't you, you go home empty handed. You don't get any Oscar for any category. Right. I mean, that's but the fact that it's in there at all is interesting. And I thought the the animation in Encanto is lively and bright and fun, but it also you know, there's there's more than a whiff of of Dora the Explorer to it. I mean, you they, they all have the you know, there's like multi skin tones and all that, but there's also everyone has these big almond eyes and these goofy expressions, and you know, there's like all these derpy animals. You know, whereas Flea, <laughs> it takes its animation cues from Aha's Take On Me right. video from the 1980s. I mean, literally, one of the open the most iconic scene is this, you know boy three-year-old boy dancing through the streets of Kabul listening to that song while wearing a dress yeah yeah there's a lot going on in that moment that you're describing I mean think of all the different cross currents of culture of music of sexuality of childhood and again of like a war-torn country it's it's really striking and very memorable. Yeah, it's a great movie. I don't think, I mean, you know, has your 12-year-old daughter seen Flea? I mean, I, I think... It's, 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 <laughs> she hasn't, but she loves the song Take On Me. 
I think it's an acceptable movie for a 12 year old, even for a precocious 10 year old. But but I mean, they're not, they're not showing flea, flea and dentist's office to keep kids uh, (laughs) entertained. Whereas Encanto is going to be playing on, on an infinite loop uh, in pediatrician centers for the, till the end of time. Look, Encanto is, is calculatedly distracting and has that, you know, hits all the uh, the pleasure centers of, you know, music and colorful memes and quotable moments. And, you know, it's like, we don't talk about Bruno is going to be played at weddings from now on, you know, in, ad infinitum. So I, I think there's just a different agenda. Disney wants to entertain and Flea wants to provoke some thought and, you know, actually hit in a more emotional way. Doesn't mean that Disney movies can't hit in an emotional way. It's just that I agree with you. I think Encanto is, is minor compared to some of the other uh, animated films that Pixar and Disney have both produced, but it's not minor in its cultural impact. Disney has already said they want Encanto to be their their next flagship property. They're planning spinoff series, maybe even sequels. Who knows? someday there may be a casita at Disney World, a magical casita. Uh, of course there will. Actually, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Right. So, um, I mean, I think it's going to win. I don't. I, I, Luca is a bad movie, and uh, I don't know. I actually haven't seen Raya and the Last Dragon. I, I don't think that's going to take. I, I am pulling for Mitchell's versus the machines. I sure, think that's Mitchell's hilarious. Versus the machines is a is a, is a fun uh, Lord Miller production, but uh, they gave them their Oscar with the Spider-Man movie, which deserved it completely, but I don't... I, I think the Mitchells versus the Machines is kind of a, a minor entertainment compared to um, the cultural juggernaut that is in Kanto. <laughs> well, back to your earlier point, it's not a bad thing to award a cultural juggernaut because that is the stickiest sort of uh, award winner, and that's the one that's going to make the category feel relevant the way that you were talking about. Like nobody talks about the King's speech, you know, we're talking about Harvey Weinstein, you know, being a rapist. That's what we're talking about. Still not a good movie. Uh, And I I would say that of the, you know, if you just look at the animated movies and there aren't that many that have faded away. I mean, I guess Shrek is a bit is dated now, but boy, was that popular in its heyday. I, I hate happy feet. Hate happy feet. I hate happy feet too. And yeah. then you know, I, I you know, I don't love Frozen, but God knows it is it is iconic. And you know, okay, maybe people aren't talking about Wallace and Gromit: The Curse of the Were Rabbit. That may <laughs> that may be the one obscure in, indie film that that has that has disappeared. But otherwise, I mean, every DVD shelf in America contains all these movies. So. Right. It is interesting to think of it as the secret sort of maybe best picture for kids. You know, essentially. Or just for anybody, or for anybody, yeah. You know, I mean, Wally. I don't know. I don't know what won um, the best picture in two thousand and nine, but it probably wasn't better than Wally. Yeah, exactly, for sure. I I think Mitchell's versus the Machines could give it some uh, run for its money. You know, maybe people are sick of giving Disney the Oscar every year. You know, they've certainly gotten a lot of Oscars, Pixar and Disney between them. No chance. Know? No chance, Stephen. We, we all live in the casita now. <laughs> this is my kid's question. What is Abuela's magic? You know, which she's just got that dumb ca- candle and then she makes everybody feel bad about her- themselves. Yeah. Sounds like, like a that's gra- her magic. Sounds like a grandma to me. <laughs> eh, good point. All right. Even <laughs> Garrett, uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, man. Uh, 
Obviously, the big news story this week is Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. But at Book and Film Globe, we're covering what I consider to be the other major story of the last week. And that is, of course, Bendergate. Futurama is coming back on Hulu, and the guy who voiced Bender the Robot is refusing to rejoin the cast of Futurama because he says Hulu is not going to pay him enough. And Rachel Llewellyn covered Bendergate for us, and she's here today to talk to us about it. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me today. So what are, what are the parameters of Bendergate? This is a, obviously a, um, I wouldn't say it's a bigger story than just one one guy, but it does, it does uh, it just sort of brings to mind how voice actors are underpaid. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's kind of happening at an interesting time. Um, well, basically, the, the story is that he is not going to rejoin the cast as of today um, because his salary requests were not being met. Um, John DiMaggio is his name. John DiMaggio, yes, absolutely. He's voiced Bender since the show's inception back in 99 and, you know, obviously a much beloved figure. And he has attempted to negotiate uh, with Hulu, who politely has declined, and he has declined as well. So it's, you know, people are kind of coming out on both sides of it. And that's pretty much the long and the short of it. They're still kind of waiting to see what happens. What is the other side of it? Because, you know, Futurama is a hugely profitable franchise that has produced hundreds of episodes at various venues. Over the years, you know, it was created by Matt Groening, uh, creator of The Simpsons. And I, I don't see where there is a side where you're like, well, just give another guy, to, get another guy to voice Bender. I mean, that's like <laughs> saying, get another Homer Simpson, get another Fred Flintstone. You know, he's like a he's that iconic of a character. Yeah, exactly. And this kind of speaks to the conflict, sort of the disconnect between these streaming producers and the audience, the fans who are like, you're not getting this. We're not loyal to the franchise. We're loyal to the, the characters. And the, you know, just because they're voice actors, and not live action actors, and you can't see their faces doesn't mean that they don't uh, wield, you know, a similar power. And that that disconnect has really been sort of pushed to the forefront as far as production and like labor issues. I think COVID really sort of put the squeeze on and push a lot of these uh, production and issues to the forefront. But just last October, they had the uh, Hollywood production strike uh, threat rather. They never ended up actually hitting the picket lines, um, but they, they Hollywood production workers and stage employees got an agreement for wage increases and, and better breaks. So this is kind of coming on the tail end of that. And uh, currently it's interesting because right now the animation guild is in negotiations with a lot of these streaming providers uh, for the same types of benefits and rights. Um, so it's interesting that it's happening now. There's a, kind of a lot going on on the labor end, especially in the animation industry. So let's be real. Animation's crushing it at the box office and on streaming. Uh, the top four streamed titles of all of 2021 on all the platforms, top four. All of them are animated. Wait, what were the, What were those? Oh, my gosh. Luca, Raya and the Last Dragon, Frozen, and... Oh, gosh, I can't remember the fourth one, but I, I, I would put that on a lot of, you know, COVID, homeschool, kids at home. And, you know, the repetitive viewing that children demand, you know, these streaming platforms have gone through their algorithm and kind of glommed onto the idea that t TV networks have had this, you know, Fox did it with the Simpsons, you know, 30 years ago. And then again, with Family Guy 10 years later. So they've, you know, animation is low cost, high profit property. And it's uh, one of the best ways to produce quick content, which is what streaming providers want. And the whole negotiation salary thing has been around forever. In fact, Futurama back in 2009 
they uh, did the same thing, stalled out negotiations on salary when they came back on the air and 20th Century Fox threatened to recast. I mean, these, <laughs> these, these big conglomerates, as much as they know what a money-making genre it is, they really overestimate their position and they haven't been coy about their bottom line. It's pretty brutal. Well, and as I was just talking about with Steven, you know, a lot of content, live action content ends up getting, you know, flushed down the memory hole soon after it goes off the air. Uh, but, you know, we're still watching. I'm still watching episodes of Futurama that, from 2009. I still watch episodes of King of the Hill. These things don't go away and they don't lose their entertainment value. You know, some old episodes of The Simpsons do seem dated, but you can still watch them. Whereas watching any other show from 1996 is almost impossible. <laughs> yeah, that's a solid point. That is indeed true. And, you know, like like you said, animation is sticky content. It's rewatchable. It's reviewable. And kids want their cocoa melon, you know, at the end of the day. And mom and dad are going to keep the subscription to, to make that happen. So as long as this algorithm is working for these streaming giants that they've just figured out in the last five years or so, they're, they're not going to budge if at all possible. So what is the prognosis for Bendergate? I mean, I, I mean, maybe Hulu won't budge. Maybe they'll be like, hey, we can we can get somebody for half the cost of, of John DiMaggio. After all, he's not Bender is the household name, not DiMaggio. But people will notice if the voice is different. And who's going to want to play with the guy who scabs for Bender? Right, exactly. That's that's been a lot of the industry chatter that I've seen on Twitter. I think nobody wants to cross the picket lines for this role. There's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, internal censure for kind of poaching this role, which is how a lot of people feel about it. I mean, there ha- I've seen like one article sort of banding about the names of suggested replacements like, you know, Patrick Warburton or Hank Azaria. No way. No way those guys would do that. <laughs> no way. No. The, the creators and cast of Futurum are totally mom about it you know obviously that's contractual but we'll see their production starts this month they already did their first table read last week so i mean they're gonna have to hash something out soon if at all or fans might have to make that tough choice between loyalty to the franchise and loyalty to the cast ironically the character bender would totally scab for the voice actor <laughs> right yeah no scruples at all i guess that's true you're already in character before you even get into the studio yeah so maybe they should just build one yeah that's funny Thank you. That's why they pay me the big bucks, Rachel. Rachel Llewellyn, thank you for covering Bendergate, the uh, most important story in the world this week. (laughs) Glad I could uh, take it to the masses. Thank you for having me, Neil. So when I saw that Reacher had become a big hit on Amazon Prime, I started thinking, who can I get to write about Reacher? Who has seen Reacher? And then I thought for a minute more and I was like, John Paul Gwynn has watched Reacher. I'm pretty sure of it. I'm pretty sure he's read all or most of the Reacher books by Lee Child. And sure enough, he had. And he wrote a great review of it. It's up on Book and Film Globe now. And JP, John Paul Gwynn is here to talk with me about it. Hello. Hello. How's it going? It's uh, it's going fine. Yeah. So you're a um, you're a Reacher. I don't know if you're a Reacher fan, but you know you're kind of a pop culture omnivore. So you know, I just figured Reacher was in in your wheelhouse. Oh, I'm a Reacher fan for sure. Yeah. 
And so the Lee Child books, Reacher's kind of, you refer to him as a, a gentleman hobo. Yes. So he's like an ex-cop, an ex-military guy? He's an ex-military policeman, a military special investigator. Like a JAG. Not really. It's, I used to be in the army. You have the military police. Those are kind of your regular, you know, like your beat cops. Uh, and then you have CID, which are like the NCIS people, which are like your federal agents. And in between that, you have MPI, military police investigations. Reacher appears to be part of MPI, uh, though it's never really explicit. He's part of he had this like special unit that he was part of. OK, so he's got, as the as Liam Neeson says, a particular set of skills. And he, yeah. he drifts from town to town, kind of like um Bruce Banner in the old Incredible Hulk. Uh, but way less sad. Like, Reacher's a pretty happy dude. Okay. Yeah. He's happy. He's not lonely. Well, looking like he does, tall and blonde and built like a car, he's probably not going to be lonely. <laughs> no. No, he gets to exercise his fists a lot. Um, he likes drinking black coffee, pie. He wants to walk around and look at stuff. He grew up in a military family and lived all over the world and then went to West Point and was in the army himself and lived all over the world and didn't really live in the United States. And he left the army when he left the army under circumstances. Um, he's got this retirement check and he just walks around or takes buses around from place to place. Just him and a toothbrush. When he, his clothes get too dirty, he buys new ones and throws the old ones in a garbage can. And he's just seeing America, but he always runs into trouble. Right. Well, a book about someone just wandering around seeing America would would probably not uh, be a 30 book series. So um, <laughs> all right. they made two Jack Reacher movies starring Tom Cruise, who's like five, five foot four. And, and, you know, middle-aged and, you know, does his own stunts and he's a great movie star and all that, but he's not really what Reacher fans imagine Reacher to look like. And so for this one, for the TV show, they decided, they basically rebooted it, decided to actually do a real adaptation of the Lee Child novels. And they cast this uh, side of beef named Alan Richton. Richton? Richeson, yeah. Richeson. And, uh, you know, he, he looks the part. He does. And I mean, it's not that it's not the Reacher fans imagined him that way. Uh, Lee Child specifically describes him that way a lot, like frequently to the point where it's hard to go like, I'm going to look at this five, seven guy. Apparently Cruz is five, seven. Let's just be fair. Okay. Cruz. I, I was let's insulting give, him. Let's give him that four. extra three inches. Um, <laughs> but it's hard to push that out of your mind because it has been so he has been so explicitly described you know and his musculature I, like one point lee child described him as something like uh looking like a bunch of walnuts stuffed into a condom his muscles so yeah and then you see tom cruise i guess when you write 30 books you can get away with metaphors like that <laughs> <laughs> here's the deal you know alan richardson i i uh i watched titans and he stood out in that show he played uh the male half of the crime fighting team hawk and dove and he stood out as as, as a, a, a man among children let's let's put it that way did you say hawk and and doug or hawk and dove hawk, I don't and, know hawk and doug would be is like a morning show team <laughs> hawk, and, hawk and dove like hawk and duck in the morning uh, hawk, yeah. hawk is like this this real tough like uh you know crime fighting guy who's always getting injured and dove is this beautiful blonde woman who's also super tough and it's not worth talking about, but let's just say he was really good in that and, and really like commanded the screen with a sort of his brooding 
uh, but also genial presence. So it, this is not that surprising a casting choice for me. No, he's really good. I remember when the the um, when the Tom Cruise movies came out, my brother and I talking about who could be there instead. And I said, Vinnie Jones, maybe. And my brother looked like he was going to throw a plate at me. So um, everybody seems to be very satisfied with him and with his casting. Yeah, it's one of those it's one of those castings like when the Marvel Cinematic Universe casts someone, you're like, well, of course, it's that person. Right. How, how could it be anyone else? And, and so, you know, there's there's a season of this, but it kind of corresponds with the first that correspond with the first Lee Child novel. Yeah, it's the first Lee Child novel. It's Killing Floor. So, I, I mean, fans know going into this exactly what to expect. There's something to be said for a really faithful adaptation that doesn't take a lot of liberties, you know, because I mean, obviously, like adaptations have to leave some stuff out, maybe add some stuff here or there. But so seeing something adapted faithfully, you know, and giving the fans what they love and what they want, you know, there's a you have to give bonus points for that. Absolutely. And and the other thing is that why would you mess with Lee Child that much? I mean, he's very good at what he does, the way he writes fight scenes it is amazing. Um, he writes with this incredible economy. Um, the places where it kind of sprawls out for me are there's too often just a conspiracy. Like he gets into trouble, but then of course it goes deeper and that's where it kind of gets into the, yeah, the, the area where I go like, uh, but then Reacher such a compelling character. He's so fun to read about. And it's such great escapist fiction. And it just breezes past like 500 pages in an afternoon. And, you know, that's a lovely afternoon spent. And, and the, so the show's kind of like 500 pages in, in an afternoon. About that. Yeah, it's eight episodes, eight quick episodes. And when we got near the end, uh, the person I was watching it with went, Oh, we're on episode eight already. Like they, they were sad. It's it's good. It's fun. It's a fun show. It's also really, really silly. Uh, it's very TV ish. It's not it's not what I would call like prestige TV. If you, you're going to be all snobby about it, like it's not it doesn't have the pretensions of something like Watchmen or. Well, thank God for that. It's just like old old school action semi comedy, basically. Yeah, exactly. Um, th- this guy gets angry, and then he says, "I'm going to kill everybody involved with this," and then he pretty much does. <laughs> All right. Well, that sounds good. If you like that sort of thing, you know, it's not really my genre, but you know, I I can see myself on a, on a sick day binging a season of Reacher. Why not? You're not going to leave angry. No, no. I mean. If it's not for you, you'll know in the within the first episode, you'll just go, this is too silly for me or this is too violent for me. And you'll stop watching it. I, I believe that TV is supposed to be silly and violent, but that, you know, that is just, um, you know, that's a particular preference of mine. So that is how Thomas the Tank Engine has been going for so many years. Yeah. All right. John Paul Gwynn, thank you for watching Reacher. Thank you for writing about it. The article's up now on Book and Film Glow. We will talk to you soon. Thanks, Neil. Have a good day. All right. Thanks, JP Gwynn, for watching Reacher and talking to me about Reacher. Lots of people are watching and enjoying Reacher. He is an angel of vengeance for all of us. Kind of like a, like Chuck Norris's Walker, Texas Ranger, but better and beefier and bigger 
and we are going to be seeing him for many years to come. Also, thanks to Rachel Llewellyn for talking to me about Bendergate and to Stephen Garrett for letting me rant about Encanto and the other nominees for Best Picture Animated Oscar this year. I'm Neil Pollock. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. Thanks for reading the site. Thanks for listening to the show. We will talk to you soon. <laughs> Old white man talking about how the uh, Latino cartoon missed its mark. Why can't those Latino kids on TikTok <laughs> stop their singing? <laughs> Original Production.